Wow, that was good. Thank you, everybody. And if you would open your Bible today, the book of Acts with me, chapter 2. This is going to probably be the last Sunday morning message on Acts 2. We may have another one or two. And I'm going to do an extensive series on the Holy Spirit that we have broached that subject and is one of the primary qualities. I'll be doing that sometime, Lord willing, in the near future. Acts chapter 2. Now, if you are a quick draw on your Bible, you can go to Matthew 28. Matthew 28, Acts 2, and Matthew 28. And then if you are a real quick draw, you can go to Acts 2, Matthew 28, and you can go to Romans 12. And we're going to read three passages of Scripture today. And I'll ask that you stand with me, please. Acts chapter 2, we begin Acts chapter 2 and verse number 41. The message this morning is on the Acts 2 church making disciples, making disciples. And we will read about how they made disciples beginning in Acts 2 and 41. Then they that gladly received his word, that's salvation, were baptized, and the same day immediately they were added into the church about 3,000 souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, that's teaching, and fellowship, and in breaking of bread, that would be the Lord's Supper in that case, and in prayer. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all that believed were together, they had all things in common. This next verse has been used through the centuries by some people to try to prove that Christian early Christianity was socialistic because it says they, the Christians there sold their possessions and goods and parted or gave them to all men as every man had need. The difference in that in socialism, though, is that they did this voluntarily. This is not socialism. This is love. This is love in action. And the Christians cared so much about the other people in the church who had a need that they were willing to sell their personal belongings and meet the needs of those people. This was not the Roman government imposing upon a group of people that they had to give of what they had to meet the needs of someone else. So there's vast, vast difference. Verse 46, and they continuing daily with one accord, great love and peace together in the temple. That would be in their corporate assembly, the church, if we would call it. And breaking bread from house to house, they were in each other's homes being entertained and eating together. And they did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. And so you have life here in the Acts 2 church, if you will. Now go to Matthew chapter 28, a very familiar passage, what we call the Great Commission. And it's the last words of our Lord given to his disciples, which, were, which was his commandment for all ages for Christian people. We're all commanded to do the same thing here. Verse 19 of Matthew 28, go therefore 
and teach all nations, or evangelize all nations, we would say, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, the Trinity, and then teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. And I particularly call your attention to verse 20, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded. That is discipleship. That's my definition of discipleship, to teach converts and new Christians whatever Christ told us to do, and it involves two things, teaching and doing. They are, we are to teach it, and then they are to observe it, if you will. Now, in the book of Romans, chapter 12, and probably the premier verses in the, all of the Word of God about discipleship, and we read in chapter 12 and verse 1, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies, that you give your complete selves to be a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, to the culture around you, but be transformed, changed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And you may be seated. Thank you. Well, as I have been preaching to you, the Acts chapter 2 church is our pattern. The pattern, at least for our church, it's certainly been the pattern for my ministry personally as a pastor. It is our model. It is the vision that we have of what church should be like. What are we trying to do here at the Florence Baptist Temple? We're trying to build a church like the church here in the book of Acts. Now, I have preached to you about the various characteristics of that church. First of all, this was a church that had a big vision. Their goal was to take the gospel to every creature, in fact, every creature in the whole world. And so, That was their vision, to always be getting the gospel out. That's why we light the lighthouse. That's why we applaud when people are led to Christ. That is our vision, our dream, our goal for our church. Secondly, I preach to you about prayer, how that prayer was the absolute priority in the life of these people. They met together for prayer over and over, and as you read the first eight or nine chapters of the book of Acts, It becomes very evident. They prayed about everything. They were always meeting together. And by the way, it wasn't just individual prayer. It was corporate prayer. They met together for what we call prayer meetings, times when prayer was the agenda for them. Because the Bible teaches us that there is power in corporate prayer even more than there is in individual prayer, I believe, and I, can, I think I can demonstrate that from the Scripture. So prayer was their priority in their life. They prayed before they did anything else. Thirdly, I would say to you that they witnessed constantly, and we've talked a lot about that. Witnessing was their daily activity. Witnessing was not a church program. 
They didn't come out for visitation, and that was the only time that they witnessed like so many do today. No, they witnessed wherever they went. In the normal course of their life, in their lifestyle, at the grocery store, wherever, when they went shopping, and and this is the modern parallel of it, of course, in their recreational life, wherever they went, their daily life, they witnessed, they witnessed to virtually everybody that they were around. They were not ashamed of the Lord Jesus Christ, and they were always even praying for more boldness to witness about the Lord Jesus. And then they were spirit-filled people. They were filled with God's Spirit. They knew that there had to be a supernatural dimension to their life. That in and of them, their own selves, they could not carry out this mission of taking the gospel to the whole world. So prayer was their priority. Witnessing was their daily activity everywhere they went. The Spirit of God, being filled with the Spirit, was the source of their power. This is what they depended upon to move the church forward. And today, I give you the fifth and the last characteristic that I'll deal with right now, and that is that they were always making disciples, that they were making disciples. And I read to you the words of Matthew 28 and 19, how the Lord says, and go and teach them to observe all things that I've commanded you. That's the disciple-making commandment, the phase of the Christian life that we call discipleship. Now, number one, if you're taking notes with me today, discipleship is the process of making disciples. When I use the word discipleship, what do I mean? I'm talking about a process. I'm not talking about something that happens in an instant of time. The process of making disciples out of Christians, to take a new Christian, a newborn Christian, and to see that person develop and see that person grow in their faith, that process is called discipleship. The word disciple, if you're not familiar with it, literally means a learner, a learner, somebody who is learning, or somebody who has a guru, we would say, and they're following that person and they're modeling after them. They have a mentor who directs them in their their activities in life. And so a disciple of Christ, if I'm a disciple, if you're a disciple, it means I am learning to be like Jesus Christ. He is my mentor. He is my pattern. He is the model that I'm trying to build my life upon. And so discipleship involves growing spiritually. It's such a tragic, tragic thing that people get saved or profess to get saved in our modern churches today, and that's the end of it. They think that the purpose of salvation is simply to trust in Christ, to get their sins forgiven so they can go to heaven and not go to hell. And that's about all they care about. They're not interested in spiritual growth. And I'm telling you, my friend, and I say it to you with all the kindness that I possibly can, But if you have no interest in becoming like Christ, you might ought to check your salvation, 
because if people are genuinely regenerated and transformed by the power of God, they want to be like Jesus Christ. He is our mentor. He is our model. He is our example. He is our pattern for all of life. And you don't want to stay where you were the day you got saved. When you got saved, you were a little baby Christian. You didn't know a lot of things. And the idea is to be a learner, a disciple, to learn what his will and his plan is for your life, and then to follow that plan every single day of your life. And so discipleship, we're trying to equip people to be Christ-like people. Somebody said it so succinctly a few years ago, and I read it in a book, and I've never forgotten it. The conversion of a soul is the miracle of a moment. But the making of a saint is the work of a lifetime. Boy, think about that. The conversion of a soul, that's salvation, being born again. The conversion of the soul is a miracle of a moment. It can happen like that. But the making of a saint is the work of a lifetime. It takes a lifetime for us to become all that we can be in Christ. Now, the basis of discipleship, as we've already seen here then, is Matthew chapter 28, to teach people to observe all things that Christ commanded us. So, look up here. I'm having to do a little teaching, but I want you to get this. An Acts 2 church is a teaching church. An Acts 2 church is a teaching church. I think maybe the very first priority duty of a pastor is that he teaches the Word of God. I teach you to love the Bible here. I teach you to believe that this is God's inerrant Word, that this Word is true in all that it says, and that you not only can depend on it for your salvation, but you can depend on it for the answers to virtually every question of life that we face today. And that the first thing we do as a Christian is we go to the Word of God and we find out, what does the Scripture say? Well, if you are not instructed, and if you don't know what the Scriptures say, then you sure can't do the will of God in your life. Many times, Christians are out of the will of God because they have not been instructed by their pastors and by their churches. And so, Spurgeon said every sermon ought to have good Bible teaching as a part of it. Every sermon ought to be rich and full of teaching. And so every time I stand up here before you, as I've done through the years, you know that the first thing I say is open up your Bible. And I try to teach you and train you in the Word of God. I was talking to a preacher this week. And we were talking about the dearth of Bible teaching because so many people are not even interested in listening to it. To them, it's boring to be taught the Word of God. And that's a tragic thing. And this man told me, he's a pastor friend of mine down in Mississippi. He said, when I was 11 years old, I went forward at a Baptist church and they sat me on the front row and they said, uh, little boy, do you want, you want to receive Jesus today? And he said, yeah. And he said that the pastor got up and said, uh, Rick wants to receive Jesus today as his Savior. And I walked out of there. I'd been under conviction. 
I wanted to know Christ as my Savior, and I walked out of there lost as a goose. Nobody opened the Bible. Nobody showed me anything from the Word of God. All they did is they assumed that just wanting to be saved was salvation. He said, when I was 14 years old, I went with my girlfriend to a Baptist revival, revival, sat on the back row, and again, the Holy Spirit convicted me of my sins, and I wanted to come to Christ, and I went forward in that church, and nobody cracked a Bible. Nobody said a word to me. They said, we're glad you came today for salvation. He said, I went forward twice in two Baptist churches. Nobody followed up. Nobody ever came and showed me how to read the Bible or to pray. Nobody trained me or taught me anything. And he said it wasn't until years later that finally I went forward and somebody showed me and began to talk to me and train me and disciple me. And now today I've been pastoring for 40 years. Isn't that sad? But it is sort of typical that we, we don't instruct our people well enough. Now, I'll promise you something. You walk through the door of this church, you're going to hear the Word of God here as long as I'm around. And if you will come enough, you'll learn it. And if you learn it, it will impact your life. That's what discipleship is about. We're, an Acts 2 church is a teaching church. And especially on Wednesday night, I teach. And on Sunday nights, I teach. I preach more on Sunday morning, but sometimes I make no effort to preach a lick. I just want to open the Word because I know you can't live any higher than what you know in terms of your knowledge of the the Scripture. But it's not enough that you just know it either because discipleship is teaching people to do what Christ what they, what they learn about Christ when they're at church. And so Jesus said, you go into all the world and you teach them to observe everything that I have taught you, which involves family, finances, morality, lifestyle, every, our vocations, every single part of our life is touched by it. And how did they do this? Well, go with me again now to Acts chapter 2 and those verses that we read. And look how they discipled their converts. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 42, they continued. See, they they didn't just let the person come forward and sit and go out the door with questions. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Doctrine means simply to learn or teaching, the teaching of the principles of the Word of God. So, they discipled people by teaching them doctrine. And then there was fellowship. And do you know that just hanging out with Christians is a part of the discipleship process? Just staying around after the service and talking to people or meeting people and fellowshipping with them. And today in the busyness of contemporary life, there's so many demands on people. I watch many of our Christians, they spend no time with Christians. And I would encourage you Modify your lifestyle if you need to, to where you have some time to spend with the people of God. Because just there's a certain amount of Christianity that, that we learn through osmosis. We just absorb it being around the people of the Lord. And so fellowship was a big thing. And then breaking of bread, they took the Lord's Supper together. They had already been baptized, of course. And then in prayers, they prayed together. 
And uh, if you will look down in verse number 46, they continued daily with one accord in the temple. They were very faithful in their church attendance. And then they were still fellowshipping again. It goes back to that idea. And a heart of praising the Lord in all that they did, of, of building their whole thinking process around their spiritual life. Now, never before have we been challenged like we're being challenged today as Christians. Never in the history of the United States have there been so many opposing forces to the Christian faith. And there's opposition from the world. Now, what the Bible calls the world, and we Christians often refer to the world, today we would refer to that as the culture. And formally in this country, the culture recognized Christianity as being its, if not official, unofficial religion in this country. Christian morality was accepted. Christian belief was widely believed and accepted by people. And today we have a culture that's completely changed. And the Bible calls that the world. It says, love not the world, nor the things of the world. And if you do, the love of the Father is not in you because the world will squeeze it out of you. And do you know why a lot of people are bored at church? Now, it may be partially my fault, but I'm going to tell you, they don't come with any real desire to know the Lord. It's an empty mechanical duty. And the Bible says the world is your enemy if you are a Christian. The culture will squeeze the love of God right out of you. And then we not only have the challenge of the culture around us, but we have the flesh that we deal with, which is our own sinful desires. I don't have to have any outside influences because I know that I have a sinful heart. And I know that the world doesn't make me have some of the evil thoughts or desires that are just natural to me. That's my flesh. And then there's the devil, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And the temptations that come to us through our minds, philosophically, spiritually, our hearts, through our, and, and of course, our actions. And so discipleship is the process of learning to overcome the world and the flesh and the devil and to have victory in Christ because we have learned and applied his word in our lives. Number two, there are four characteristics, I think, that sum up what it means to be a disciple. And so I hope you might write these down. In fact, we've made these into posters, and if you will walk down some of our halls, you will see a picture of a person there, a man or a woman, and it shows you these four characteristics of a disciple. I didn't come up with these. I read a book a few months ago by a man named Barna. Barna is a, is a pollster, and he's a very brilliant man. He's been doing polls now for 30 years among Christians primarily. And George Barna said that the greatest need of the Christian church today in America is discipleship, that we have done a better job getting the gospel out than we have discipling our people. 
And he talked about the biblical illiteracy, how people just don't know the Christian faith. They may profess to be Christians, but they don't have a clue what the teachings of the Scripture are. And Barnes said, we need to be, the church needs to go back to putting all of its efforts into building disciples, making people, helping people to become Christ-like in their lifestyles. And Barna is the one who gave me these four things, so I want to give him credit for it. Number one, uh, and before I tell you what number one, let me back back up for just a moment. I forgot something. Now, I'm going to give you my vision here of what a disciple looks like, four things that characterize a disciple. But I want you to think of it like this. This is a checklist where I can evaluate myself as a Christian. And maybe I can challenge you through these four things to look at your life and say, what kind of a Christian am I? Am I really a disciple of Jesus Christ? Now, I believe you can be a Christian and not be a disciple. I believe you can be saved in a moment of time. And I believe discipleship is that process of growing to Christ-likeness. And so some of us today... We were saved, and we're number one, and we've been saved for five years, and we're still a one. And some of us have moved up, and we're a three. And we have some people in here that are eights or nines. I mean, they're powerful, strong Christians. They have been growing through the years and becoming more and more of what the Lord wants for us. What are those four things? Number one, disciples have a biblical worldview a biblical worldview. In other words, they think differently than the rest of the world thinks. They don't just immediately hear something and buy in. They are discerning people who evaluate what they hear and see around them by the Scripture. And so the Scripture becomes the standard by which they evaluate everything that they encounter in life. Now, when I use the word worldview, what do I mean? A worldview is like a paradigm. We use that word sometimes. A paradigm is the way you look at and interpret life. I'm looking at life through this pair of glasses right now. If I took off my glasses, it would change. If I go outside, I might put on my sunglasses, and then I look at everything through the lens of the sunglasses, and it darkens the brightness around me. And and a biblical worldview is looking at life through biblical glasses, if you will. I'm interpreting the world and the environment around me by my Bible. And there are two dominant worldviews today in our culture. One of them is a secular worldview. When I use the word secular, now hear me, I want you to get this is important stuff. It may not be real entertaining. I can't make it more than what it is, but it is the sum and substance, ladies and gentlemen, of the Christian life. The secular worldview begins with the idea that there is no God. It believes that evolution explains where we came from, the origins of man and the universe. It doesn't believe there's any such thing as moral absolutes, so there's no such thing really as sin. There's just a better way and a less better way. And secularism doesn't acknowledge Jesus Christ as being anything special. He was just a good man. He was a teacher, if you will. Secularism 
in our world today has no objective basis for morality at all. No right, no wrong. As I said, every person is basically his own authority in life. And secularism gives you no meaning in life. If you're a secularist, you come to the end of your life, and there's no meaning attached to life. You're going to die. Your biological functions will cease. And when they do, life ebbs out of you, and you're gone, and you're no different than a rock or a tree. You just existed for a while, and you're gone. And the secular worldview leads to chaos. And if I could say it in one phrase, what's wrong with America today, I'd say secularism. And we're going into chaos. Have you noticed that nobody can rule, nobody can have authority, nobody, that we can't unify people, that the whole country is more divided than it's ever been in 40 different ways? It's not just racial, and it's not just economic. Man, now we've got, uh, we've got the men against the women in this political race. We're so divided as a nation. I don't know if there's any hope for us to come together. And it's because when you elevate man to be his own God, then you're going to have chaos because all the gods don't agree anymore. And the Christian worldview, the biblical worldview is so different. It starts with God. Before there was anything, there was God. And he was the creator. He created everything that exists. He created man in his own image, and then man rebelled against him and sinned. And this loving God, holy God, but yet loving God, he so loves this creature that he's made in his own image that's different from all the other creatures and all the rest of the environment in the universe, that he sends his only begotten son. He becomes man in the flesh, in another way to say it. And he goes to the cross and he dies for our sins. He provides redemption, a second chance, so that we can come back to him and have a relationship with him and live in his favor and have our sins forgiven and go to be with him throughout all of eternity in heaven. And then he says, all this chaos that's come from rebellion and sin, I'm going to come back to the earth one day and clean it up, and I'm going to establish a worldwide kingdom, and I'll rule in the re- rule and reign from the throne of, my, of David in Jerusalem. And that's the Christian worldview. We interpret everything through that. So when I hear some of the statistics about what's happening, When I hear that in Chicago, Illinois, they have shot 4,000 people so far this year, I can explain that. The heart of man is desperately wicked, Jeremiah 17, 9. So we can shoot each other. And it's not a big deal. If you're a secularist, it's not different than shooting a tree or shooting a dog. A human being's life is not special. And those two worldviews prevail today. 
And our challenge is to create Christians in the midst of this moral and spiritual insanity that we're facing. We think differently until a Christian begins to think through that biblical narrative. He's going to be conformed to the world. You're not going to be able to tell any difference in the Christian, the unchristian. The second characteristic of Christians is that they're transformed. They're different. Now, they're not different immediately the moment they get saved, but they grow in their discipleship, and they become fully transformed. And so I read to you the passage there from Romans 12. And Romans 12 says, Don't be conformed, pressed into the mold of the culture around you, but be transformed, changed. Be Become like Christ in your life and in your thinking process. Transform people. 2 Corinthians 5 and 17. If any man be in Christ, that's a way of saying if any man is a Christian, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. And old things have passed away and all things are becoming or have become new. Christians are transformed. What is it that transforms us? We have a new master. We have a new Lord. I've told you the story, but it bears repetition. About a hundred years before Christ, before the time of Christ, in the Roman Empire, the Caesars wanting to have absolute control and power over their people, had the Roman Senate and the other official houses proclaim officially that Caesar is God, that Caesar is deity. Now, the people knew that Caesar wasn't God. They understood that Caesar didn't, he didn't create any, the world. They, they understood clearly that Caesar was just a man. He was going to die, could get sick, and have the flu like they could. They understood all that. But it was a way to consolidate political power, to use religion to do it. And they had a test. Now, they didn't ask that anybody quit worshiping their pagan gods. They didn't ask anybody change their religion. But once a year, in every town, there would be an altar erected with Caesar's image. And in the front of it, right here at his belly button, there would be a little bowl right there, and there, there was coals of fire in it. And every Roman citizen who was an adult would walk up and take a pinch of incense, drop it in that little bowl of coals, and say audibly, Caesar is Lord. That's all you had to do. Then you go on your way. It had nothing to do with your life had nothing to do with your beliefs. It was a mechanical, political way of forcing people to acknowledge the supremacy of Caesar over their other religions and over everything else in their life. But nobody really believed it, but you did it. And then came Christ 100 years later, and he taught people, I am Lord, Master, Boss, President. CEO, and the Christians understood the first commandment, thou shalt have no other gods before me. And it came the day 
in each town in the provinces to do your obedience to Caesar. And the Christians said, we won't do that. Oh, come on. You don't have to mean it in your heart. Just do it. Just, you don't even have to think about it. No, I will not have anybody else before Jesus Christ. Oh, come on. You're going to lose your respect in the community. People are going to wonder where, where your loyalties lie. No, we won't do it. And do you know that thousands and thousands of Christians were carried out and became political prisoners and died because they wouldn't put a pinch of incense on an altar and say, Caesar is Lord. Jesus Christ came along in that time, and when he said, I am the Lord, it put cold chills up and down people's arms. You and I hear that. Jesus is Lord. Doesn't mean much to people today. But back then it meant this. Jesus is boss. And Caesar is not. And Jesus is in charge. And nobody else is. And because of the strength and the power of the convictions of those Christians, Christianity took over the world. took over the world. By 300 A.D., Christianity had transformed the Roman Empire. Now, we live in a day, here's what we've done. We have compartmentalized. So what we've done is we've divided life up like a pie. We've sliced it into six or eight pieces. Family, job, recreation, Money, religion, and we take that one piece of the pie out, religion, Christianity, whatever it is, faith, and on Sunday, we get in our car and we pick up our Bible and we come to church, and we give the Lord two hours out of 176. And we walk out and say, all right, through with it for another week. And that's typical American nominal Christianity. But disciples of the Lord don't compartmentalize Jesus into one piece of the pie. We believe that Jesus is Lord of all of life. And so we say, Jesus is Lord of my family. So I don't look to the culture and the latest book on parenting to tell me how to rear my children. I rear my children under the lordship of Christ. And we take our checkbook and we pay our bills and we buy the things we need in life and we say, Jesus is Lord of my finances. And I don't live my financial life and never give him a thought or give him a little tip at the end of it. And I go to work, and going to work is my ministry. Going to work is not where I 
divorce Jesus Christ and put him back in his Sunday morning compartment, going to work is my opportunity to be the salt and the light and show the world a transformed life. So Christians are different, different in a good way, not strange and weird and, you know, people that you don't want to identify with. Disciples are people who have dealt with this issue of the lordship of Christ, and we've said Christ is Lord in every area of our life. Now listen to me. Jesus demands to be the Lord of every area of a Christian's life because he's bought us with his blood. Now hear me. If you don't hear anything else today, let me please get this. The point in your life where you know what Jesus Christ wants you to do, what he asks you to do, and you're no longer willing to do that is the point that he's no longer Lord. The point in my life where I know what Christ asks me to do, but I no longer do it, I'm not willing to do it. No, Lord, I'm, I, I can't give you that part. Whatever that is, the point in my life where I know what he wants me to do and I'm unwilling to do it is the point where he's no longer Lord at all in my life. That's powerful stuff. Third thing disciples do is they witness. And I won't spend any time on it. Acts chapter 2 verse 32 simply says, we're all witnesses. And you know we all witness. Even if I don't never open my mouth, my life, it has some degree of witnessing. So we are all witnesses. We all communicate what we think of Jesus Christ. I emphasize witnessing not only because of what witnessing does for the people with whom we share the gospel, but listen to me. Witnessing does more for me as a Christian than it does for the people I witness to. It gives me a joy. It, it helps me to stay centered. It helps me to know what is really important in my life more than anything else. If nobody ever again listened to me or got saved, I would witness for what it does for me. It keeps me close to the Lord. And the fourth thing disciples do is they serve. They serve through their local church. And here again, you see Christianity is being pushed out today, and our culture emphasizes individualism. Our culture tells people constantly, we educate our young people in our public educational institutions, we educate people, you do your own thing, you, you, you know, you're, you're your own God, you please yourself first. And as a consequence, we have what Charles Colson refers to as radical individualism, everybody living for themselves. And that de-emphasizes the role of the church. So churches are struggling across America in many places because people no longer think of themselves as being a part of a community of faith. They live totally for their own selves, their own needs. And the church is God's way of mobilizing believers, and organizing them to where they can be a functioning, mobilized army, if you will, where we can be effective 
in making an impact in the world around us. And so Christians serve, disciples serve, rather. And I would say to many of you here today, my dear friend, you are missing the greatest blessing of your life when you are not willing to step up and serve. And oh, how we need you. We need you. We've got a lot of people here. But do you know there are more tasks to be fulfilled in this church every week than people are people sitting in this building this morning. Hundreds and hundreds of tasks and jobs. And many of you basically have said, no, I'm not going to do that. Now, Jesus, I'll come to church and I'll pay my tithe and I'll live a good life. But now, don't. and I want you to rethink that and reconsider that. God has given you gifts and abilities and talents, and we need them, and the cause of Christ needs those same things. And lastly, So discipleship is a call to a committed Christian lifestyle. And I want to close with this. Please hear me as I close this whole series of messages, essentially. We are in a struggle like I don't think anybody in this building understands for the very soul of our civilization. I talked the other night with a man at the ball game. He'd been to a seminar And it was a seminar full of very important military people and judges and so on. And he was telling me what some of them straight out of the Pentagon and living in Washington, D.C. said about the state of the country right now. And I don't have time to tell you the details of it. But I think that the people in the heart of, the, the, the people in the know in this country realize that the country is just tottering on the brink of absolute chaos. You sense it if you're a thinking person. And the Christian faith, our faith, the faith of our fathers is being pushed rapidly out of its prominent role by this radical secularization. These anti-Christian forces demonically inspired, are in charge of our government, by and large. What kind of a country makes it law that a man can go in a girl's bathroom because he decided one day that he is really a woman in a man's body? Now, I've got a word for that. It's called insanity. And when you have a government that will take insanity and make it the law of the land, God only knows how far we've come and gone. And then anti-Christian forces, the government, talk to the chaplains today and see what is happening in the military where they can barely mention the name of Jesus Christ under the most controlled conditions. Don't tell me the government is not hostile to Christianity. And then you, but you have media where we're mocked and we're ridiculed. And you have the entertainment world that does the same. And we have education that's attempting to turn our 
children into global citizens and atheists and all kinds of stuff that we never imagined even five years ago in this country. And then we have the threat of radical Islam. Now, this is not a pity party. This is not woe is me because... But, but, I'm, but it's reality. And listen to me, Christian. The day of the easygoing, nominal 1950s Christianity is just about over in America today. And we're going to probably find out something. I read this week, church attendance is down so bad across the country, but a man said this. The number of Christians, real, true Christians going to church has not changed in America. It's the number of people who profess Christianity. And when the reality of where we live today dawns upon them, then they just quit. They've been secularized. But the real, true, blue, born-again, blood-bought believers are not going to turn their backs Our back is against the wall. We've been told we're yesterday's faith, (laughs) that our day is done, that we're on the wrong side of history. We're the people that cling to our guns and our Bibles, and yes, I have both. And and in every way, we're caricatured as, as, as a bad type of people. And so the level of commitment we've had in the past is not going to serve us well in the future. Nominal Christianity is not going to cut it. I don't believe in the global world that's being formed. And so I challenge you today as my brother and sister in Christ. Do you think biblically? Do you have a transformed life? Do you witness? Are you willing to serve the Lord? Is Jesus Christ Lord of your life? Is he truly your master and your boss? And pleasing him permeates your thinking process. That's the disciples of an Acts 2 church. Stand to your feet with me, if you will, please.